Now, as you probably know, this is Palm Sunday, and this weekend begins what Christians refer to as Passion Week, or in some traditions, we call it Holy Week. And Holy Week commemorates the final week of Jesus' life that leads up to his death and resurrection. And as we've studied the Gospel of Mark, we've spent a lot of time in uh, chapter 11 all the way today to chapter 15. That's how much of the the Bible in uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11 to 16, focuses on that last week of Jesus' life. It's over a third of the Gospel of Mark. And so we've been there for a long time. And I want to summarize the, uh, the final week of Jesus' life by going Sunday to Friday. And then we're actually going to focus on Friday in my message today. But here's what happens on Sunday. That's Palm Sunday. Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey in prophetic fulfillment, that he was the king, he was the Messiah of God. We look at Monday, and this is where Jesus cursed the fig tree, he cleansed the temple, and he returned to Bethany, as we talked about through our study. On Tuesday, that was a very long day because there was a lot that happened. We noticed how Jesus was questioned by the religious leaders five times. I mean, it just, they couldn't get enough of it. They kept trying, and they failed. Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple, and then he talked a little bit about the unfolding of what would take place before his glorious return. On Wednesday, the Sanhedrin plotted and planned to kill Jesus, and this is where Judas agreed with them to betray him and set out to find an opportune time to do so. On Thursday, this is Pastor Jared's message, was last week where he talked about the several things, or tried to summarize the several things that happened on Thursday. This is the last Passover with the disciples, and Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was, in fact, betrayed into the hands of the, uh, the uh, temple police. And then, of course, on Friday, Good Friday, otherwise known as Holy Friday, or could be God's Friday. I don't know your tradition, but if you go down the uh, rabbit hole when it comes to tradition and you look at why we call it Good Friday, I just want to say uh, good luck with that because it will take you a long way. I, I was this week going like, Once again, why do we call it Good Friday? And I don't have good answers for you. There's about 25 answers for you. Uh, Happy hunting, good searching for you. (laughs) A lot happens on Friday. And as we focus on the crucifixion story, I want to contextualize that for you. So basically in Mark 14, 43 through 52, Jesus was betrayed by Judas, arrested by the temple police. In verse 53 to 65, he was brought to the Sanhedrin He was accused and handed over to Pilate because they couldn't condemn him to death. They were under Roman authority, and so that was not in their power to do that. They could condemn him, or they could accuse him and then bring him before Pilate, which is what they did. In Mark 15, verse 1 through 15, we see Jesus come before Pilate, and uh, he, of course, questions him. He brings him to Herod. And he has, Jesus has an encounter with Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. And when he does send him back to Pilate, that's when Jesus was accused again and he was formally condemned to death. And verse 16 to 21, this is where Jesus was mocked. He was brought into the praetorium. He was flogged and he was beaten beyond recognition. And Mark summarizes it in just a few verses. And today we'll focus on verse 22 to 41. This is where Jesus is crucified at Golgotha for the sins of the, of the world. And I want to read to you the two accounts. Number one is Mark 15, 22 to 41, and then John 19. And the reason I want to do both of those is because John fills in from his perspective some things that Mark doesn't uh, bring out in detail. So I think it's really important that we look at both of those together. So here's what it says in Mark chapter 15, starting with verse um, 22. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. They crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. 
When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, and this is in Aramaic, I'm not going to try to say it and embarrass myself, but what he meant here, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance among who were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And here's what John 19, verse 17 says. They took Jesus, therefore, and went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him with two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. I, I, I just, by the way, I, I like that response. That's <laughs> how I like to talk. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts apart to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, it was, that was John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I'm not sure about you, but uh, I didn't grow up ever attending a, a Good Friday service or even reflecting much on the death of Christ. It wasn't um, a tradition of any kind. I didn't know anything about Lent or anything like that. Not until I was almost 20 I gave my life to Jesus, and I started to attend every kind of church service imaginable in every kind of church. I began to go to a number of uh, different styles of churches and see their preference and, and their tradition, of course. And in studying Scripture and reflecting on the crucifixion account, I've gained, like I'm sure most of you, or if not all of you, a deep appreciation for all that Jesus has done, his, his sacrifice on our behalf. And it makes sense when I read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. This is what Paul says about the cross. He says, the word of the cross, the message, this message we just read, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those that do not know Jesus, to those that are on their way to an eternity without him. It is foolishness to them, what we're talking about today. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For those of us, when we read about what Jesus did, it's the power of God. It brings joy in our hearts. It's weighty and it's sober when we look at it, but the implications of it change all of our lives. It's the power of God unto salvation. Why is this the case? Why is it the power of God? And I would say to you today, simply put, Jesus did for us what we simply cannot do for ourselves. He lived the life we couldn't live he died in our place and he rose from the dead three days later. All of this to fulfill what he came here to do was to offer the opportunity for every person to come back into relationship with our heavenly father. 
We were created to know and love and walk with God, and we walked away in our rebellion. So for Christians, the cross represents total forgiveness from God. Everybody say total. Not like a little bit, not if you do kind of good, but it means total forgiveness. For Christians, this is what the cross represents. It's become a centerpiece of our faith. Let's be honest, some of us have a tattoo of the cross on our body right now, and I'm not here to judge. I have it on my necklace. We have it. We have one up here. There's one right there. It, it, it has become a centerpiece of, of our faith. And, and following Jesus, it means so much to us. And, 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 and we see it on hospital buildings. We see it on clothes. We see it all over the place. But we've got to remember that in their world, the cross meant something entirely different. When Jesus preached about the cross, they were confused when he talked about the cross, when they saw him on the cross. Why? Because the cross was the most degrading form of capital punishment in their day. That's what it represented. It represented a criminal's death. That's, that's what they saw. It was quite normal for them to see this form of capital punishment in their time. Criminals were crucified on crosses. Typically, they would crucify them on a hill or at the beginning of a city. And when people saw someone on a cross, it was Rome's way of saying, this is what happens to you if you cross us. They would do it publicly, shamefully. They wanted to warn other people, the Roman Empire is here to stay and we're in charge. They were running the show. For us, the cross represents heaven. But to Jesus' disciples, having seen this personally, they watched this happen with their own eyes. It represented hell to them. Can you imagine what they felt and thought? They, they thought this was defeat when Jesus was on the cross. We look back and we know that it was victory, but they didn't think that. They thought, how can this happen? How can this innocent one, this miracle worker, this prophet, we thought he was the guy. How, how can he suffer so much? He didn't fight back. He didn't say anything when he was accused. He just took it. And they're thinking about all that Jesus went through. And here's what we know. And they found out for sure. The cross represents or symbolizes obedience to God at any price. Paul said this to the Philippian church in Philippians 2 and verse 8. He said, being found, he's talking about Jesus, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And look at this, even death on a cross, even a criminal's death. That's how humble Jesus became. I mean, it's just unfathomable. The torture, the pain, the humiliation the death of a criminal. He did this for, for us. And after hanging on the cross for several hours, the Bible reads there in, in John in the last verse that we read, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He said, it is finished. And we might ask the question today, what is finished? Well, our debt was paid in full. What Jesus came to accomplish, he actually fulfilled. So he said it out loud for all to hear. It is finished. And I, I wanna make just a couple quick observations about the crucifixion account as we gather together today. And here's the first point I want to make. When we look at both of these accounts from John and Mark, and that is Jesus suffered greatly. Mark's gospel in verse 23, it says this about uh, that moment where they gave him wine mixed with myrrh. But, but what does it say? He refused it. He refused it. That, that word there, refuse, it wasn't like, no, thank you. It was that he utterly refused it. I mean, he just pushed himself. I cannot take this. It was a taking a stand. Now, the drink that was offered to Jesus was a cheap Roman vinegar wine, but it had a drug mixed into it. It was a way to sedate someone. Actually, they looked at this like compassion. There's probably two things that could have happened. When he's walking along, along the road, some would say in history that there were some women that were there and out of their compassion, they would actually carry this, this myrrh, this Roman vinegar wine that was mixed with this, um, this type of drug. And they would give it to those that were gonna be crucified. And the reason they did it is when they drank it, it would start to shut down their internal organs ahead of time so they wouldn't have to feel the full pain when they were being crucified. That's why they looked at this as a form of compassion. And it also could have been that the Roman soldiers actually allowed them to, to give it to him um, right there. We don't know exactly how this transpired, but 
The fact is it was offered to Jesus. The drug was offered to Jesus for him not to feel the full pain, for him not to have to experience all of the torture, which he had already been going through it. And, and Jesus said, no. And here's why. It's because he chose to experience all of the pain. It was a choice. Nobody dragged Jesus there. Nobody forced Jesus there. He chose to be there. And this is why he took on the full pain for the full payment. Jesus chose to be there for us. Look what Isaiah 53 and verse 4 says. You might be familiar with this, but I want to read it to you in the Amplified Bible because it expands what it really means here when Isaiah says it. He says, But in fact, he has borne our griefs, talking about Jesus, and he has carried our sorrows and our pains. Yet we ignorantly assume that he was stricken, struck down by God and degraded and humiliated by him. Did you notice that? He's saying that, that we, those that were there, those that saw this, we thought that this was the curse of God that this would happen to him. Oh, how we were wrong. That he was doing this for us. We thought it was, he was stricken by God, but, but those, those that were there, they, they're wrong. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our wickedness, our sin, our injustice, our wrongdoing, the punishment required for our well-being fell on him. And by his stripes or his wounds, we are healed. Or another way of saying it is we are made whole. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. But the Lord has caused the wickedness of all of us, our sin, our injustice, our wrongdoing, to fall on him, come on, instead of us. We must understand that when we look at the crucifixion account of Jesus, you might ask the question, why all the torture? Why all the pain? Why all the humiliation? And I have an answer for you today. This is how bad sin actually is. This is sin. Jesus paid for our sin. He took all of the sin on himself in this moment. That's how bad sin is. The small sins, the big sins. You know, in our world, we do this. All of us try to negotiate where we're at on the pecking order of our sinfulness. You know, I'm not really that bad, we might say, right? I'm not really that bad. This story shows us that all of us have this condition called sin. It's not about who's worse than others. It's that inside of us, we're born with sin, this rebellion toward God, this wanting to do our own thing. I want to be my own person. I want to be my own God. I don't need him. I don't need to obey him. I don't need to listen to him. We were born with this. And Jesus had to pay a price to bring us back and give us an opportunity so that we can know him, love him, walk with him again. The reason the punishment was so bad is because sin is that bad. And we remember that this week. Jesus was not paying a price for his own sins. He was paying for ours. That's why it, it looks so gruesome and so horrible. So we, we feel that today and we remember what Jesus did. You know, in the flesh, I don't relate to Jesus not taking the myrrh, not taking the drug, not, not being sedated and allowing his internal organs to be shut down. I, I evade my consequences and my pain. I, I've got a lot of ibuprofen, you know, amen, take it a little bit every now and again. Jesus wasn't interested in taking a little bit of wine to dull his senses, was he? Now, I'm not here to have a show of hands, but I think some of us do that. When we're feeling a certain kind of way, we pour a glass of wine. Now, is there, Ben, are you trying to Make me feel bad for drinking wine and a beer. No, I'm not. I'm not. Amen. There's a lot of Bible verses about, you know, not getting drunk. But if we're honest, sometimes we do things to feel better because we don't like how we feel. That's just what we do. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't want to feel a little better. He was here for the single purpose of saving our soul. And he wasn't interested in making that easier. This is how bad sin really is. I don't need to feel better right now. I came to take all of this for all of you. That's why he was here. He suffered greatly, didn't he? The second part of this is Jesus was mocked openly, and it gets worse. In every account of the crucifixion we read from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are various groups of people right there at the cross mocking Jesus, and I want to bring them up to you. The first were the thieves on the cross, and 
In Luke chapter 23, it gives us a little bit better picture of this. It says that both of the thieves, both of them, were hurling insults at Jesus. Now they're being crucified because they've actually committed crime. Jesus is being crucified because he's paying for all of our crimes. And so they're hurling insults at him while everyone else is as well. Save yourself, they're saying. This is what they actually said. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and please save us too. That's what they say in Luke's gospel, chapter 23. If you really are the Christ, man, this would be the time to do something. And by the, by the way, we would like to get off the cross too, please, sir. Thank you. Oh, but they're guilty. And they're mocking him in, 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 a, in a way. If you can imagine him being crucified in between these two. And the second is the people who pass by. In Mark and Luke's account, it just says there are people passing by, people that are walking by him the entire time. And they're saying to him as they're walking by, if you are the Christ, then save yourself. If you really are who you say you are, if you really are who people are saying you are, and that sign above you is reading, if you are that, then why in the world don't you save yourself? Jesus, come on down from the cross. Show us who you really are, mocking him one after another. And, and then, of course, the third group, we see the chief priests, the scribes, the religious leaders. Uh, they couldn't help themselves. They all had to be there. We've been studying Mark for some time, and they were questioning Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus. They plotted this. They planned this. And now they're getting what they wanted. And so, of course, they're right there at the cross. They followed all the way through his suffering, and they're right there. And they're, they're just loving this. This is what they wanted. The ones that read the Bible, this is what they want. They wanted Jesus to die. And they're so glad that it's public. They're so glad that it's out in the open. They're so glad that this shame is coming to Jesus because now what they want is they want everybody to start following them. Isn't that what they wanted the whole time? And so what do they say? What comes out of their mouth at the cross? Well, you'd probably guess it, but they said, he saved others. Why doesn't he save himself? That's exactly what they're saying. And they're saying it to everyone. Hey, he saved others, right? He healed everyone else. Good teacher, wasn't he? Look at him now, but he can't, he can't do anything about where he's at now. He must not be who everyone thinks that, that he is. Now, why, why are they doing that? Because they want everybody to keep following them, right? They're just using this moment, this opportunity to bring everyone back into their fold. Let's gather the sheep back together and go back to business as usual. No more Jesus of Nazareth. That's that's what they thought. Oh, they were wrong. Weren't they wrong? Come on, get, let me get a smile. I know it's sober. And it should be. The fourth group is the soldiers. You know, these guys are just carrying out orders, right? They're just, we're just carrying out orders. We're supposed to do this. We've been told to do this. Uh, we have to, or, or you know what happens to us. And so they're actually standing there in Luke's gospel, and they're saying, if you really are the king of the Jews, they're kind of after practically killing him by beating him to a place where he's not even recognizable according to Isaiah. After almost killing him and he's bleeding out and they're sitting there and, they're, and they did this. And they're saying, you know what? If you really are the king of the Jews, why don't you go ahead and show us? If you're the king of the Jews, why don't, why don't, you, why don't you do something right now? Save yourself. Save yourself. We'll believe in you, but you gotta show us. And then there's also the sign in the inscription that reads, the king of the Jews. Was that not mockery? Pilate wrote this. Pilate, the guy that says, I'm not responsible for any of this. But, but he has this written, the king of the Jews. And they're all mad about it. And so just in case you spoke Hebrew, Greek, or, 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 or um, Latin, they had it in every language. Mockery to all who would see, wanted everybody to, uh, to see this. And, and here's, here's what I think about why the gospel gives us so much detail. This, this is wise because I think it's a prophetic picture that every one of us in this room today, every human being is actually right there at the cross. It's all of these groups of people represent all of us right there. And, and it goes all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, disobeyed, turned their back on God. This is what it looks like. The utter rejection of Jesus Christ is seen right at the cross. Every one of us can be found in one of those groups. We have rejected God. We have gone our own way like sheep. We've all gone astray. 
And here we are mocking him. This is what rebellion and sin looks like, guys. Jesus is paying for it and it's still coming against him right there. It's this prophetic picture of our utter rejection and our guilt at the cross. We rejected God. We rejected his son. This is why Jesus had to die. What is being said to Jesus is actually an outward manifestation of the inward reality of how we feel about God. That's just sin. Jesus, of course, is dying for that. I mean, it's amazing. The third point is Jesus acted selflessly. While Jesus was on the cross suffering, hurting, bleeding out, dying, look at this. He was only thinking about us the entire time. From the moment that he was conceived, grew up as a young boy, came into his ministry, healed people, preached the gospel, the last week of his life, and even now on the cross, he was only thinking about us. That's why he came. But there's some very important moments in the gospel account that show us Jesus is right there nailed to the cross. And what he says out of his mouth shows us exactly what his heart was filled with. This is what it says. The first is Luke 23, 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They they don't know what they're doing. Wow. Forgive them. They don't even know what they're, they're not even capable of understanding what they're doing to me right now. They don't know. Luke 23, 43, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise to the thief on the cross. I don't know how it happened, but one of the thieves on the cross had a moment of revelation. I'm guilty, you're innocent. And if you are the Messiah, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? Everybody remember this? Such a sacred thing that happens here. He turns, that's repentance. He turns from mockery to asking Jesus, would you please allow me into your kingdom? And Jesus looks at him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. He didn't have to go through anything else. It was that simple mustard seed of faith. Jesus received it and proclaimed to him the truth of his eternal place with him. That's amazing. He's still on the cross thinking about us. Wow. John 19, 26, Jesus is up there and he sees his mom. There's Mary and there's John. And he says, woman, behold your son, behold your mother. And it says that John took her into his house until the, uh, for the rest of, of her days. We don't know where Joseph is. Some, some his, historians or scholars believe that Joseph, his um, earthly father, was, was not alive at this time. We actually don't know. But, but Jesus is thinking about his mom. He's dying and he's thinking about his mom. I mean, this is incredible. The worst moment of his pain, he's still only thinking about us, working on our behalf. Friends, this is God towards us. Isn't that amazing? Whenever we struggle about the love of God, we look at the cross. There's no greater I love you than the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no greater feeling that we're gonna get than what Jesus did for us. I don't feel the love of God. I haven't heard his voice. Look at the cross. Nobody will ever do anything for us that will speak louder than that. That's the greatest and the loudest I love you from God that we will ever get. It isn't about our feelings. It's about a sacrificial act of one man on our behalf. And that one act changes our lives if we put our life into his hands. Jesus acted selflessly. There was no level of pain or suffering that would derail his selfless love and his sacrifice for us. Nothing was gonna deter him from what he was there to do. This is incredible. And then lastly, I wanna say to you today from this account, Jesus gave himself fully. Look at John 19, 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, now, now real quickly, the sour wine is, is not the wine mixed with myrrh. Those are not the same things. Don't get those confused. The wine mixed with myrrh was a, a sedation. It was, it, it was the drug, like I told you. But this, this is like some common uh, table wine. It was a, a cheap wine. You, 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 the leftover wine, okay? Uh, this is the bad stuff, the boxed wine. I, I don't know what, I'm not, a, I'm not a drinker, so I don't. I don't know. Some of you guys understand wine. You're like, you get it. But uh, he received that wine. And he says in a loud voice, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. That was 3 p.m. when Jesus lifted up his head to heaven. And he said these powerful words. 
In the moment, I, I don't think those three words meant, meant much. Now, those that were there, the disciples of Jesus and, and all of the people that were at the cross, they could not have understood what he was saying. It wasn't until later. These words are written much later. They, they saw this. They, they had to contemplate and meditate on what Jesus meant. It is finished. Uh, they were struggling with this entire thing, the disciples were, and, and all of the followers of Jesus. They, they didn't fully know. So when Jesus said it is finished, like they didn't get it then, but they would come to understand it later, wouldn't they? They would come to understand these, these three words in English, one word in Greek. That one word is tetelestai. You may have heard this before at a Good Friday service. But this expression, tetelestai, it is finished, is commonly known, understood, and used in, in their world. It was, a, it was a word used, for example, when a servant completed a job, they told their master, tetelestai, I, I finished the job. When a merchant in the marketplace made a sale and the money was handed over, they would often say, tetelestai, and that meant that the deal was complete and the price was paid in full. When an artist finished a painting or a sculpture, they would take a step back and they would say, Tetelestai, this is complete. Nothing else needs to be done. When Jesus said this phrase, he was not saying, this is the end of me. He was not surrendering himself to the pain. Jesus was saying that the sacrifice that I came to make has now been paid in full. And what that means, what that means for you, what that means for me is that the devil lost all of his authority. Sin lost all of its power. And death does not and will not have the final word. That's what Jesus was saying. And he was thinking about you and he was thinking about me when he said it. There's no more weightier words in all the world than it is finished in the mouth of Jesus Christ. Tetelestai, it is finished. And so today, if we struggle with how we feel about ourselves or the level of performance that we have as a Christian, friends, I want to tell you that Jesus paid for you and he paid for me. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. It said, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. This is what we become in Christ, not by any merit of our own, not by anything that we have done, not by our keeping and sustaining power or our pitiful performance, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we have been set free from our sin. You and I are forgiven if we're in Christ. If we're in Christ. Oh friend, how sad it is if we're not in Christ. We don't have the forgiveness of God. We don't have the eternal promise that Jesus secured for us in the cross and resurrection. But for those of us that put our faith and our trust in him, this message is not some fictional tale. This changes absolutely everything. There's no wonder why our timing system is, is built around this event. BC. Now they could try to change that, you know, that everybody could try to change that. But I think human history, <laughs> there's a gravitational pull of human history around this one event, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The future and the past is all pulled into this because of what Jesus did. Now, we're going to receive communion here in just a moment. And I think this is an appropriate time to do so. How about you? I mean, we're going to anyways if you disagree with me. <laughs> but I want to, uh, actually, Kiefer, would you mind passing me one of those right there? Thank you. I want to call you to three responses as we look at our response to the cross of Christ. Number one, surrender your life to Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you do not know the love of God in Jesus I want you to know and understand that the cross is for you. The cross is for me. Jesus paid a price. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. And for those that put all of their life in his hands and follow him, 
He says to you, your relationship with the Father is restored, your sins are forgiven, and when you die, you shall live forever. This is the promise of God. And this Christianity is not some simple, just I get forgiven for my sin in heaven when I die. It is a whole new life. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. It's a new life. It's not about, man, I want things to get a little bit better, Ben. Pastor Ben, I want my life to be a little bit better. If my life was just a little bit better, then things would be great. No, friend, we need a brand new life. (laughs) We need a brand new heart. Amen. If you got a broke down car, you don't just need a tank of gas. You need a new car. Some of you are like, I'll receive that. <laughs> well, that was good. Right. You need a new life. And you can't make that happen on your own. I can't either. We have to be utterly found in the person of Jesus Christ, giving ourselves to him fully, completely, without reservation. It's an all or nothing call. The gospel is all or nothing. It's not give Jesus some of your life. It's not just give Jesus your sin. That's easy to do. Give Jesus your sin. Here you can have my sin, but can he have your future? That's what he's asking for. He's asking for it all. That's why he gave it all. He wants us. He wants us back. So if you don't know Christ today, I want to encourage you strongly, as strongly as I know how, without it just being an emotional response, but a real one from your own heart. Pastor Ben, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. I know I need to be forgiven. I know I need a new life. I know I need a new heart. And I don't want to go one more day. There's, there's something inside me. That's the Holy Spirit telling me today's that day, not to go another day. That's for you. That's for you. What do you do? It's not hard. Give your life to Jesus. How do I do that? Pray a prayer. The prayer is not salvation. It's the offering of surrender to God. The prayer is just the way that we get the job done. It's not about the prayer. It's about offering your heart. So it doesn't matter the words that come out of your mouth or how perfect they are. Say, Lord, I give you my life. Forgive me. I turn from myself and I turn towards you. However you say it, stumble over your words. God loves it. (laughs) He loves it. It's like a father and mother love their children when they're trying to talk. You know, they're trying to say something. It doesn't matter how eloquent we are. It just matters the condition of our heart. For the rest of us in the room, if you're a Christian, I want to encourage you, confess your sin to Jesus and leave it at the cross. The cross is sufficient. The cross is enough. Now, do we want our life to change? Do we want to renew our mind? Do we want to be made new? Do we need to stop doing some things? And all of that is true. But we got to start with confessing our sin, not negotiating it. Jesus paid so that we don't have to lie anymore. We don't have to lie. We don't have to hide. We don't have to act like it's not that bad. We don't have to negotiate. And if you're like me, you like to negotiate. Amen, you do. I like to negotiate. No, it's not that bad. You know, I only did a little bit of this. A little bit of this one. You know, it's not really. And all of that is just a waste of time because I'm just not confessing my sin. I believe that we would be a lot better off. Our hearts would be less weighted down if we would just confess. I did this. I said this. I've got anger in my heart. I've got, my life is filled with lust. I've got cycles that aren't broken. Just confess it. Jesus is the one that paid for it. We confess it. Get it out. Jesus wants to take it. If you can imagine somebody's right there waiting to take all of it. We just got to say it. Get it out. Don't negotiate it. Don't dumb it down. Confess your sin to Jesus. And the last thing is commit your future to the purposes of Jesus. This is discipleship. There will always be something wrong in our life if we give our hearts to the Lord, confess his name, he's my savior, he's my, thank you for forgiveness, but then we don't have any intentions of tomorrow getting up and putting our life in his hands. That's not Christianity. So we will always feel like something's wrong. Something will always be wrong if our future is not his. And so I encourage you, to give your future to Jesus. And if you feel like, man, Ben, I've done that, do it again. (laughs) I've done that, do it again. Man, I failed at that, do it again. This isn't a test. It's, 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 It's not pass or fail. It's you're in Christ. Every day is a new day to worship, serve, love him. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be. And here's why we can be glad. Here's why you can be glad. 
If we woke up without knowing this, I don't know how we would feel glad. Trying harder to do better does not work. Being in Christ, man, that works. I'll take that, amen, I'll take that. That's why I came to him. That's why we stay in him because the way in is the way, is the way on, amen. As we, uh, I will, I will preach. I don't know who that said that, but I'll preach it. Um, as we come towards communion, I, um, one of, I mean, my favorite hymn, I don't know about you. I know some of you really love hymns, and I, I like some hymns, I got to admit. Um, some of them I don't understand, but I, li- I like some hymns, I do. I, 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 in fact, I love some hymns. And uh, this one that Pastor Ryan's going to lead us in, instead of just taking a few moments to contemplate, I want us to celebrate what Jesus has done and declare the blood of Christ before we receive communion. We're going to do that in just a moment. But, but with all your heart, sing this song. Sing this together. Oh, thank you, Lord. What can wash? And what can wash This is the flow Thank you, Lord. Would you just join me? Thank the Lord together today. Thank you, God. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that washes away our sin. Paul said to the church in Corinth, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's do that together. Thank you, Lord. In verse 25, he continues, in the same way he took the cup Also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's do that together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you today for what you've done. I pray, God, that we would not only remember it, but we would live in the implications of it. We're forgiven. We're set free. We're made new. This is what you paid for. Let us live in nothing less. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. And uh, real quickly, if you would, the ushers are coming by and they're going to pass baskets. And as they do that, you can take the communion cups, place them in there and pass the basket to your friend 
on the right or left. And if you could stand, I'm going to close us during our time together. Two quick things before you go. Uh, Number one is when you came in, you received a card that looks like this in your bulletin. And I want you to know this is a, a card that outlines the Passion Week. So we basically, we have all the passages from all four gospel accounts, all the events that transpire in the last week of Jesus's life. I want every uh, year at this time during the Holy Week, we give this out to our church because I want you to take it home and I want you to use this or at least reflect on it and what Jesus has done for you this week. And this brings you right there to what, what it says, what happened, what passage, and just makes it really easy to, to look at all that Jesus has done. And so the work has been done for you. Here it is in one card. Share this with your kids. Amen. Use this for devotions. If you have children at home, just use it for yourself. Put it in your Bible. I think it's a great reminder of what we celebrate during this time. And then lastly, I wanted to share uh, some prophetic inclination that we had this morning. We pray for our church. Uh, I pray every day for our church, but particularly on Saturday and Sunday, I ask the Holy Spirit to give words of knowledge, words of wisdom, prophetic words. If you're new to this, or if you roll your eyes when I do it, (laughs) which someone confessed to me last night, that they're not rolling their eyes anymore. I understand. I understand that we, 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 don't, we don't like things we don't understand, but I want to tell you, you serve a supernatural God, and He knows everything about every person in the room right now. Sometimes He'll whisper to each one of us about a person, and not to shame, but to liberate, to set free, to release uh, hope and life and comfort. And I so appreciate how the Holy Spirit works in His people. I love that 1 Corinthians 12 tells us the gifts of the Spirit are available today. We are a church that unashamedly believes that what God has done, He he will always do. He does, does, He's a God that still releases power, miracles, signs, wonders, healing, deliverance. God is always doing this. He always has, He always will. It's just who He is. And so we uh, share words at the end of the service or at different times when we pray for one another. Um, And we're always going to do that in case you're hoping this part doesn't keep happening. I am relentless. I had a picture of someone this morning. I was praying and you, um, I don't know how to explain it other than you were physically choking. It seems kind of strange to say it. I don't don't actually know how to describe it, but I I had a picture of a person that was just, you were choking. And, uh, and it was strange to you, like, what's wrong with me? Like, it was a physical condition. It's an actual physical condition. And, uh, and it just feels like your, your throat is being constrained to the point where you, you, you're, you're choking. And, and, and maybe you haven't even shared it with anybody yet. But as I began to pray, I felt like the Holy Spirit was showing me you so you, that you would be healed of whatever this is, that healing would come to you today in the name of Jesus. And so if that's you today, we're going to pray here uh, as we close. And number two is I had this strong word come, and this was for for someone today. This is a time for you to move forward in seeking to bring reconciliation to relationships that are estranged. The Lord will bless your efforts towards this, even where you've become exhausted and trying to make things different than they are. The Bible says, be at peace with all men as much as it depends on you. And the question that I have is, have you sought to bring reconciliation as much as it depends on you? And what if the supernatural of God would breathe on our efforts as we try again? You don't have to feel guilty for what you can't make happen. But if we're resting in a time where we should be seeking to reconcile, I believe the Lord brought it to our attention today that he would breathe on our efforts. And I want to encourage you to try again, especially for you if you feel exhausted. Man, I've done that, Pastor Ben. Nothing has happened. You don't know how bad it is. You're right. I don't know. That's the truth. But God knows. And God is in the midst of changing hearts. God is in the midst of bringing families together, bringing people together. God can do um, what we can't do. And the last thing was, there was a vision of a person, I know this sounds kind of funny, you're on a merry-go-round and you didn't know how to get off. 
You, you know when the kids are on the merry-go-round and somebody keeps spinning it and they can't get off? It's really cruel. That's what that is. But this is a cycle in your life and you feel like you can't get off. And somebody's spinning that thing and if you were to try to jump off, the cost is too great. And I just want to tell you, the Lord has the power to break cycles in our life where we feel like we can't stop something or get off what's happening to our life. God can break the cycle of that. It doesn't just happen when we pray. It starts when we pray. He begins the breaking of a cycle. He helps us get off. Now, we're dizzy when we get off and we got to figure out how to live life now. But he starts by breaking the power of the cycle. If you came to church today and you're on this merry-go-round and you can't get off, maybe it's something you're doing, something you're thinking, something you're feeling, something you're believing. And this thing is just spinning your life. It didn't start that way, but it certainly is that way now. God has the power to break you off of that. Set your feet on solid ground and help clean you up or whatever you need. Renew your mind, whatever. God can do that. Would you pray with me this morning? If that's you, receive that from the Lord and not just from my words. But Lord, we thank you today that you're the God of the supernatural. We pray, Lord, that if there is any cycles that we are facing right now, if we're on the merry-go-round and we can't get off, I pray, God, that you would break the cycle. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a way where there is no way. And we prophesy that today. There is a way. There is a way. Maybe we don't see it. We don't know how it's going to be, but there is a way. We ask, Lord, that you would break that cycle for the person that's experiencing that physical condition where it feels like choking. God, I pray for your healing. And I thank you, Lord, for miracles in our church, for those that are facing a disease of some kind where there isn't seemingly a cure and we're just trying to get better. I pray for healing over them today. And God, I also pray that you would breathe on our efforts of reconciliation, Lord, as we commit ourselves and our heart and our path to seeing relationships restored. God, would you work in the midst of that, that we would glorify you for what you do in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.